All right, guys. I'm so grateful to be with you guys today. Um, in case you don't know me, my name is Chris Godoy. I've been leading worship here for the evening service for the past two or three months with my wife, Hannah. Uh, we've really enjoyed being a part of your community. You know, getting a chance to lead you guys in worship has been just a joyful experience. We really enjoy um, playing and singing, just being involved in music. Uh, and with Seth being out of town, he gave me the opportunity to speak. Um, just to give you guys a little bit of background into uh, one of the reasons that he gave me the opportunity. Uh, I'm going through my residency course over at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, working towards my master's in Christian leadership. And so some of the things that they asked me to do is to get up and speak, have some opportunities to teach, have some opportunities to preach. And so Seth was gracious enough to give me the opportunity here at the evening service while he was away. And so hopefully this will be great for you guys. And hopefully, you know, it does help me out a little bit in my course requirements. Um, but I'm hoping that as we open the scriptures together, we'll both be edified with this. Okay. Um, so as we're seeing here up on the screen, we're going to be talking about idolatry tonight. I'm going to be doing a brief overview of a few scriptures that I've found have given me kind of a, a almost like a true north of what idolatry can look like, what it can be. Um, and so I'd like to open that up with you guys. The first scripture that we're going to open up today is going to be Psalm 115. And I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 8 just to kind of get us started here. So let's go ahead and open up to Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> not unto us, O Lord, not unto us. But to your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, So where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. Now, some of the words here uh, liken to our call to worship that we had in Psalm 135. So you can see that this isn't necessarily a singular moment in Scripture um, where they're addressing the idea of idolatry. They're addressing the, that their idols are silver and gold that they'd have no mouths. He goes through a long list of things of what idols are, what they are fashioned to be, and yet they may have all these physical characteristics, but they actually can't do any of the things physically, though they have these characteristics. And then verse 8 is kind of our key point right there. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. And so the main idea I want you guys to kind of start wrestling with as we work through this is, that idolatry is an image issue. Idolatry becomes who we are. It becomes something that is all-encompassing to us. Um, it takes over our lives. It takes over various parts of our identity. And it can just be all-encompassing, just like it says, those who make them are like them. We become like that which we idolize or what we worship. <clears throat> One of the things that I was noticing as I was watching TV the other day that kind of gave me a a little bit of an example of this was West Side Story. I was watching Turner Classic Movies, and you guys remember West Side Story, the musical, fantastic musical. Uh, I love the dance fighting that they do. I really had no idea that dance fighting still existed, but you know, 
I guess in the 1960s, that was one of the things that they did in the musical. Uh, so you see you have two different places that they're going, two different gangs, as it were. They have the Jets and they have the Sharks. The Jets are the guys who own the territory. The Sharks are the Puerto Ricans who are coming in to try to you know, have their own part of the territory. And then outside of those two gangs, you have Tony and you have Maria. Tony used to be a part of the Jets, isn't a part of the Jets anymore. He's working. He has like a nice job trying to provide for himself, trying to provide for his family, all these various things. And then Maria is outside of this system as well. She may be born as a Puerto Rican, but she's not actually a shark. She's not part of the gang, as it were, of these two competing factions. And so, as you can see, Tony and Maria, you know, the story goes, is very Romeo and Juliet style. They meet each other, they fall in love, there's conflict because the Jets and the Sharks, they're trying to have a battle to see who's actually going to own this land, who's going to own the territory that they're a part of. But see, Tony and Maria, they're, they're not a part of that. They don't find their identity in what gang that they're a part of. They find their identity outside of that, which gives them the opportunity to find love outside of that. And so even within some of the songs that you see within West Side Story, you see the Jets singing, oh, you know, once you're a Jet, you're a Jet for life. And they list all these various things that you gain by being a Jet. And their identity is all wrapped up within being a Jet. It's within being a part of this gang, being a part of this image that they have created for themselves. And same thing with the Sharks. The Puerto Ricans, they may have that country. They may have that something to pull from that kind of combines them all together. But then they're all sharks. They all have this gang that they're a part of, and it causes a conflict between the two of them because they can't coexist for some reason. This image becomes more to them than anything that they can do together. And so because of that, they, they lose themselves. They lose their very identity in this system, in this gang, as it were. And it's, it's, it's really difficult because their idol becomes the gang that they're in. Their image belongs inside of this system that they have decided to become a part of and have decided to become engro engrossed in through the course of time. And as you continue to go deeper and deeper into something, you have a harder time getting out, as it were. And one of the great examples of that, I was reading something by James K.A. Smith. He's a great philosopher, uh, new Christian thinker of the time. Um, he has a book called Desiring the Kingdom. And he brings it to modern day times. He brings it to the idea of the shopping mall. The shopping mall is considered to be a hub. All people go there. There's various chapels, as it were. You know, you guys worship at Sears. You worship at JCPenney. You go to Ace Hardware, wherever your store may be but each and every one of these places has a very similar experience to them. They have the experience that you go in, you find that one thing that you can't live without, and then you go to the same cash register that you see in every single store, you purchase it, you give the money, you get to go away with this item that's supposed to make your life even better. And so he has this idea that within this experience that we go into, within this experience that we are a part of, that we have these desires that lead us there. Whether it be a desire to be beautiful, we go to Sears, we buy makeup, we buy new clothes, different things like that. Whether it be to be useful maybe, we go to Ace Hardware, we buy tools, we buy different things like that. And those desires fuel us to go, go and do a specific thing. And then as we have those desires fulfilled, 
we just continue going back and go again and again and again. In this situation, James K. Smith would call it that we are liturgical animals, that we crave this idea of repetition. We crave this idea that I understand that my desires and my love for something are leading me into something else, but how do I control that? Sometimes I can't, unless I take an opportunity to just see what those desires are actually doing. And then we can kind of flip the switch on those and take a second and see what I'm actually becoming by doing things like that. For myself, I see that in music. You know, I was a drummer from the age of eight. <laughs> I actually went all the way from eight years old, did middle school band, high school band, college, I got my bachelor's in music. And all that time, you know, the one thing that they told me is you gotta practice. You gotta practice, you gotta practice, you gotta practice. You're not gonna get better unless you practice. And what I found myself doing was that as I practiced, I started developing a desire to play more. I started developing a desire to, to play different types of music to you know, advance my skill in different ways and broaden my horizons as it was. And as I continued to develop this desire to play, it became easier to play. It became more enjoyable to play. And before long, I could play you know, just sitting down in a drum set and just having at it. It was really simple. And so going back to this idea of desires that are just engrossed in us, that, that James K. Smith would call us liturgical animals, my practicing had cultivated my desires from eight years old all the way till I was about 28, 29, whenever I kind of took a break from playing. I was cultivating this desire that I had inside of myself to play music, to play drums, and my skill kept increasing and my desire kept increasing for those various things. Now, I'm not saying that the desire in and of itself is bad to play music, to go to the shopping mall, to have friends or community. But any time that we start seeing those various things as more important than God or more important than our identity in Christ, that's whenever the desires get misappropriated. That's whenever the desires start almost pushing out of the way God, and we start to see that and become more of what we actually desired on what we have actually idolized rather than being able to see a full picture of who God is and being able to do exactly what he wants us to do and finding our image in who God is and in who he wants us to be. You know, speaking, speaking of image, if you guys remember back whenever we were going through some of the lessons with Seth at the very beginning of his uh, series that he's been going through, God's Plan for Everything, he talked about at the beginning that we were called to be image bearers, that in the beginning God created us, he called us to bear his image on the earth, to be representatives of himself on the earth, and that through that God would actually have his reign and rule all throughout the earth. And so our call was to tend the garden. Our call was to take care of the animals. Our call was to enjoy the fruits of what was in the garden and all of those various things. But what happened, some of our desires got out of whack. Some of those desires became misappropriated. They, they overcame our, our own selves. And we ended up being involved in sin, and which led to the fall. And we're here today because of that. Now, 
I want us to look at that idea of idolatry being an image issue. If our original call is to be God's image bearers, and if we look at idolatry, and like I said, our, our true north is going to be Psalm 115, talking in verse 8 specifically, you know, those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. In a way, we're giving up our true identity. We're giving up our image that we were supposed to do, supposed to be called to. And we are taking on an image of something that can be manipulated or whatever we desire it to be. It can be anything for that matter. Just to give you guys an example of this, um, let's turn to Isaiah 44. There's many examples in Isaiah. I could give you guys about five or six different places that I found in there. It's a very big book, so there's a lot of examples for it. But if we turn to Isaiah chapter 44, I'm going to read a few verses, and we're going to get a little bit more of this idea. Let's start in verse 8. And it is going to be a long one, so like I said, verse 20 is probably where we're going to stop, just to give you guys an idea. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. And then this, these next few verses just paint a really beautiful picture. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks out one with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. And then goes into that same part that we were talking about in Psalm 115. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. 
and no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So as we see in this verse, at these, these few verses, it gives us a beautiful picture of various types of ways that idolatry was dealt with in Isaiah's time. The blacksmith, he's using all of his strength. He's, it's, it's almost like he's a workaholic, as it were, because he never goes out and drinks any water, and yet he grows faint. The craftsman, he's measuring things. He's making sure everything is right, making sure everything is perfect, and he cuts down all these cedars, he cuts down all of these various things, takes care of it, and then he uses the rest of it to burn so that he can have a fire. And then what does he do with the little remnant that he has left over? He makes himself an idol and worships it. These very things that they're manipulating, these things that were meant to be shelter, meant to be security, meant to be warmth, they've used, they've turned, and almost taken them and pushed them a different way to create for themselves a God that they can manipulate and use themselves. <clears throat> you know, as I, as I was thinking about these different things, um, one of the really interesting examples that I see in movies, again, you know, West Side Story we used earlier, but uh, Lord of the Rings was one of them that my wife had as we were talking through this. And you see, you know, Frodo, you see Sam, they're taking the ring, they're going to the volcano to put it into the fire. And along that their past, they see Smeagol, who has become just this disheveled, almost shell of a man, because he's given himself over to this idea of the ring. He, he even calls it his precious. He's been utterly consumed by what he desired. He's been utterly consumed, and his identity has changed because of what he has decided to put as his ultimate thing. <clears throat> Now, I know a lot of this sounds very grim. <laughs> a lot of this sounds very um, almost apocalyptic, as it were. But there are even examples that don't necessarily have to look this bad to be uh, image issues and idolatry issues. Um, some of the various things I was thinking about is we're, you know, we're YouTubers nowadays. We see on YouTube a lot of the times that people have countless numbers of followers, countless numbers of people that are watching their videos. And what are they watching their videos for? They're watching them for beauty tutorials. They're watching them for uh, the, the latest gaming trends, you know, people that are playing video games professionally, um, asking for the next tip on how to bake something or how to make something or something like that. But sometimes if you completely engross yourself in that, that identity of who you need to be on YouTube, that becomes who you are. It's no longer about who God created you to be. It's no longer about, like we were saying, the image, being an image bearer of God. It becomes about this identity that I need to put forth for people, this identity that has now gotten me so many followers, and so I need to keep putting money in the bucket. I need to keep on you know, putting all this effort, this investment into this image, this identity that I've created because it's profiting me so much. And it becomes difficult to get out of it. I think one of the prime examples of that, um, this, is, this may be 
my last biblical example of this, just to, just to save you guys a little bit, um, is in Isaiah 6. So let's turn to Isaiah 6. Um, and we're going to talk, I'm just going to give you a brief example of this, just a small piece of this, because um, I actually worked through all of 1 through 13, the entire chapter 6 of Isaiah is just packed with idolatry uh, issues that Israel was dealing with. Um, but I think the, the precipice, just the, the complete cornerstone for all of that within, these, within this chapter is between um, verses 9 and 10. So let's just read 9 and 10. And I want you guys to hear just the echo of um, just losing yourself within this identity, losing yourself within these various things that you thought were paying off. Okay? So verse 9. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. So Isaiah is given this command. You know, before that, verses 1 through 8 is all the, the forgiveness of Isaiah, the holiness of God, um, the call of Isaiah. And then we see this is what God tells him to do, that he's supposed to go and cause people's hearts to be dull, cause their ears to be heavy, to shut their eyes. But we would think that this is a failure. We, originally, whenever I was reading this, I'm like, yeah, it's a complete failure. You know, I, if I was to get up here and preach to you guys like I am right now, and your hearts were to become dull, your, you know, your eyes were to close, you guys were possibly to get up and leave, you know, that would be considered a failure. I would, I would probably have a stern talking to by my boss <laughs> and ask him, like, hey, why, what happened at the evening service? And I'm like, oh, don't worry. I, this is what it was supposed to happen, you know. But if we look at this, verse 9 kind of gives a, almost like a, a connotation for why it's supposed to happen. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. What did we talk about earlier with the image, with idolatry, with this identity? Things started to come in and block their view of God. Remember Psalm 115? They became like the things that they made. They, they trusted in them. They became like the things that they made. And so it really wasn't a failure necessarily on Isaiah's part. He was faithful with the message. The true difficulty and the true failure was uh, with the Israelite people. The Israelite people had begun to worship idols. And because the idols that they made had all the physical characteristics that a normal person or thing would, they became the same way. They may have the physical characteristics, but those physical characteristics aren't working. No ears are working. No eyes are working. None of those things. And so they're becoming spiritually dull because of their worship of idols, because that's the identity that they've decided to take on. Now, I know, where's, where's the silver lining for us, right? I don't want to just completely bombard you guys with just ideas of idolatry and, oh, you know, get you guys scared, you know. It's a good idea to search your heart. That's one of the reasons why in the beginning of the service I want us to do a silent moment of confession because there is a God that still comes and forgives us. There is a God that if we turn to him, just like he's saying here, 
lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. There's still an opportunity for healing. There's still an opportunity for forgiveness. If we look at Christ's example in Matthew 6.33, we see that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all the things will be added unto us. If we look at it, idolatry as an image issue, then we begin to see that it's a grab for power. It's a grab for money. It's a grab for something that we want or that we need. Something like we were talking about earlier, that our desires are being formed within us and they're leading us in a particular way. But when we seek God, when we seek Christ and all of the righteousness that he has, all of these various things that we could ever want are going to be given to us. He's waiting for us to do that. He's waiting for us to come to him, to return to the image that we were called to, the image bearing of God that we were originally called to, and be that to other people. It's the only way that we're going to have any kind of life. You know, we talked about these things, that people are becoming deaf, people are becoming blind because of the way that they were worshiping these idols. If we want true life, then we have to come to God. We have to come to Christ we need to see him for the supreme one that he is and take back what we were going to be in the first place, what God called us to be. Come to him and allow him to renew us. So in closing, I want to read one more scripture for you guys, and then we'll, we'll sing a song and we'll, we'll go ahead and finish up our evening service. So Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. This is the promise, this is the hope that Jesus has for us should we return to him. So I like to read it uh, in, in our Bibles, and then I'm actually going to read it in a wonderful commentary by Eugene Peterson. He did a, he did a version of it by, called The Message, and I really love the way that he puts those three verses. So let's read it here. Mine's the New King James Version, so if it looks a little bit different, I'm going to read it here, and then I'm going to read that version of it. <clears throat> Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your, soul, your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I realized that I left my phone, which has the message version back here. <laughs> Thanks, sir. All right, let me read this for you. <clears throat> and just envision, this is, this is Jesus' words. These are the things that he wants for you. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Beautiful words. Learn to live freely and lightly. Those are the things he calls us to. He doesn't call us to any kind of enslavement. 
He doesn't call us to any kind of toiling, striving, any of those different kind of things. He calls us to rest. He calls us to a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. So let's consider that. Let's consider that. Let's consider ways that we can remove the idols, the images that we have decided to become, the things that we've put in front of us. If there's nothing that comes to your mind, that's fine. But just remember that Jesus calls you to a life of rest, a life of unburdened, and just like he said, rhythms of grace, things that he wants for you. Let's go ahead and we'll close up with a song this evening, and I'll be back up with our benediction and we'll be good.